Welcome to the Idle Book Club for June 2017. From Idle Thumbs, I'm Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Argadale. This month we are discussing A Sight for Sore Eyes by the late crime novelist Ruth Rendell. Next month we are reading Jesus' Son by the unfortunately even more recently late Dennis Johnson. Uh, but first, this month, A Sight for Sore Eyes. Usually, Sarah, I ask you why you picked this book. Um, I had read this book before. Did you suggest we pick it? I think you actually might have, even though I had read it and talked and, and told you about it in the past. Probably. But you're you're the one who had the previous knowledge about the quality of this book. So what what made you originally pick up A Sight for Sore Eyes? Because I, I bet most of our American-based listeners will have not heard of Ruth Rendell, I suspect. Yeah, Ruth Rendell is, uh, was an extremely successful British crime novelist who wrote for several decades before she passed away in, I believe, 2015. I b- became aware of her when I was living in Boston and frequenting my local bookstore, Porter Square Books, and I would just attend author events frequently because they, they often held them at that bookstore. And one day I attended a talk by Ruth Rendell, who I was not familiar with, but I, you know, I would just go to those events because they were, they were there. And she seemed very, she was old at the time, but seemed extremely sharp. And she was, I just remember thinking she was witty and, and came off very well. And she had just published a sequel that she was doing a book tour for, to this book that we're reading, that we read this month, aside for, for Sore Eyes, she published a sequel called The Vault, which tied this book into her long-running Inspector Wexler series. And um, uh, I picked up both books, actually, and really loved this one. And so when we, um, last month, we read uh, Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye, and we had been thinking, okay, well, let's pair up maybe books that share some theme or subject matter. And we decided to, I, I said, okay, well, I have this crime novel that I haven't read in quite a while, um, and I would, wouldn't mind revisiting it. And that's, that's where that came from. Which is funny now that I think about it, because it, while both The Long Goodbye and The Sight for Sore Eyes would be classified as crime fiction, they're very different in in that aside for sore eyes there's no detective work there's no mystery to it we know exactly yeah we as the reader know everything right, yeah. uh, as it's as it's happening uh which is interesting to think about her writing not really a sequel but a follow-up book to aside for sore eyes that brings in more explicit detective work but maybe we can talk about that when we get to the insane ending yeah. to A Sight for Sore Eyes. I don't read a lot of crime fiction usually, uh, although lately I've been finding myself being more and more interested in this type of writing. But I believe usually novels like this have an element of um, actual detective solving, whether or not it's with the police or in the case of The Long Goodbye, a, a private investigator. Mm-hmm. Whereas not only does this book not have any of that, but you also spend a significant amount of time with the actual murderer. Um, Long before, even before the cri- any crime is right. committed. The, the first, maybe even a third of this book is all set up for the characters uh just a very very detailed backstory basically for the two main characters francine and and teddy um to to the point where if if i didn't know anything about this book um previously when you had talked about it to me you had compared it to the tv show the fall mm-hmm. um which is it's a british Mm-hmm. TV show, correct? Where the, the the main selling point of that is is you spend a lot of time, equal time with the the policewoman who's trying to solve the crime and the actual criminal to um to the point where you start to sympathize uh, with the criminal just because you're seeing so much about this person. And uh, so I knew going into reading this book that there was going to be some kind of crime committed. 
and I assumed it would be the Teddy character based on the fall comparison. But if I didn't know that, if I had just picked up this book, I, based on the first 100 pages or so, I would have no idea really that this is a crime novel, um, except for Francine's backstory yeah it sort of just reads which which is not the crime right that you would it's not the crime right yeah. yeah it would not knowing that you would you would take this book as i mean accurately still as sort of a generational class novel uh which it all you know which it also is but you spend a long time where it is essentially entirely that mm-hmm. uh, should we should we discuss the actual premise of the novel sure so this novel tells the story of three characters Teddy Brex uh, in the U.S. edition and Grex in the U.K. edition, uh, Francine Hill and Harriet Oxenholm, uh, three characters from three different social classes whose stories intertwine um, and are are increasingly complicated by a series of murders that Teddy commits, starting with his uncle, eventually resulting in his own undoing. It, it's it is structured in in such a restrained and impressive way because really for the a very very significant part of the beginning of the book none of these characters know who have have any connect connection with one another uh Harriet who of the three um is definitely given the least amount of a- attention the novel opens with her being painted uh, for her portrait being painted um, in what's what's the name of the, the or, Mark and Harriet in Arcadia Place. So she's being painted along with her rock star boyfriend. Right. At the time, uh, b- before these three threads meet, when Teddy is just off on his own, that painting is the only connection that really happens. Uh, it's not until Francine and Teddy just happen to meet that you really start to to see where this story potentially is going to go, um, and and again, it takes it it takes an impressive amount of time to yeah. get to that for a, a a crime for something in 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 the mystery genre uh, where there isn't really any mystery or crime uh, until that moment. Although by the time he meets Francine, has he already killed his uncle? Yeah, I I believe he has. Right. Yeah. So so his uh establishment as the murderer of the story has been been made for you know honestly when when I first started to read the book um just because I knew th- that Teddy was going to eventually end up committing some kind of crime I thought maybe that he was going to be the person who murdered Francine's mom oh because yeah i mean that's a that's fair enough because we do get there are different timelines in this book because it moves right it spans i think something like three decades yeah and so and it's never necessarily clear right where and and in fact that's actually something i really appreciated about this novel reading it a second time you know now in an eventually characters reach the the 90s at which point cell phones exist and so on Mm -hmm. but for quite some time um we're sort of unmoored, and I think Rundell does a really great job of painting each era with just enough detail to situate you in it once you've been there for a while. But she very explicitly doesn't ever say, you know, and now it's ten years later, and now it's this. I mean, I don't know, maybe she does, but but it's but I remember spending a lot of time um, feeling like I had to sort of ground myself in whatever new setting we were in and it was i thought very effective and also teddy does kind of end up being the one who kills her mother her second mom at least oh that's true right i i totally forgot that he also kills julia julia yeah (laughs) this other character but but i yes but that is not necessarily where what what i was thinking it would go to yeah um it's it, it takes basically the the beginning of this book is like several uh short stories because you're you're being at first introduced to multiple characters who their significance or their connection is not immediately clear and and you'll you'll spend some time with Teddy as a child and then you'll go to Francine and then you come back to Teddy and now he's a teenager and you kind of have to be reintroduced to him again and and learn how he has changed since the last time 
you were, were reading about him. And, and every time that happens, it, it really is like you're, you're reading the next short story and you have to spend a few paragraphs reacquainting, like readjusting basically. And it, it, it truly takes a, a really talented writer. And then the moment that Francine and Teddy meet and, and he becomes obsessed with her and you can start mm. to kind of guess what's going to happen, then it, this incredible urgency just overtakes you because you want to protect, at least I felt like I just wanted to jump in there and save poor Francine. <laughs> just like Julia. She inspires people to, right, want, to, yeah. to want to protect P- her. Perhaps not quite like Julia. Although, <laughs> I guess putting the book away and not picking it up is not so dissimilar from locking uh, Francine in her room forever. Sure. It's like the fiction, fictional equivalent of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so the the last, the first half of this book, slow burn, and then the last half is just anxiety after anxiety occurs. Oh, yeah, um, sure. Every interaction between Francine and Teddy is just rife with something terrible is going to happen to this woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, terrible things happen to all the people around her. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk about some of the sort of character by character? There are really three main characters in right. this book. And and in decreasing time, uh, yes. that would be Teddy, Francine, and Harriet. Sure. Teddy grows up in a sort of slovenly working class home with two parents who barely pay him any mind mm-hmm. um, and an uncle, similarly. Right. <laughs> and... Uh, I, I, what did you make of, what did you make of the portrayal of those characters? I mean, they were sort of, um, they were almost cartoonish in their levels of sort of malnutrition, sloth, um, you know, disregard for their child. Uh, we get sort of, I, there's an interesting moment later where, um, for a moment when he's, um, you know, bricking and plastering the, the wall in, Harriet's house, Teddy gets this like glimpse of appreciation for his father's kind of workman like trade that he plied over the years, you know, as a bricklayer. But other than but we other than that, we get very little sympathy that is expressly drawn for Teddy's family. And I'm curious what what if anything you made of that. I, I definitely found it I I will say all three characters' families in this book are not given a lot of sympathy, but um, Teddy's maybe because we spend the most time with them feel the most brutally depicted. Uh, so this is the second Ruth Randell book that I've read. Yeah. And the first one also has a very similar setup where the uh, character who eventually become again, a, a male character in who eventually becomes a killer also is raised in a uh, circumstance where his, family members uh care so little for him in in an almost comical fashion where you just can't believe that that people would there are scenes where he's supposed to be a child and no one will pick him up from his mm-hmm. his playpen i mean it, it's it's outrageous uh and you're talking about this book or the other book in this book but right. it, but okay. a sim- similar setup in in the first rondell that i had read so reading these two in my only experience with her writing and I know that she's a very prolific author, but mm-hmm. it's, it's funny because now I have this impression that she is just obsessed with this kind of yeah. characterization. I mean, the implication clearly is that this upbringing is what made Teddy into a psychopath. I, I go back and forth on that. I don't know whether it made him into a psychopath or whether it sort of kept him from develop, you know, he sort of had a psychological disorder in just the way that happens, mm-hmm. but this was like the worst possible um, upbringing that didn't yeah. prepare him for the world in any way, even given that. Sure. Which is, you could say the same for what happens to Francine. Right. Yeah. You, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and we should talk about Francine after this because yeah. I think there's interesting stuff going on with her family as well. I, I read, a, f- a decent amount today about Rendell in preparation for this episode. And I, and I had, I had already known that she was made a labor peer in the house of Lords 
in the UK because she was a major donor to the uh, Labour Party. Um, I also learned, I, I guess she was also, I mean, she strongly described herself as a feminist, a socialist. She was described as being very concerned with social justice issues. In the House of Lords, she spoke out on behalf of homeless issues and gay rights issues. So she was a very, uh, she was a very um, sort of socially aware person. And that kind of makes it very fascinating to me that she depicted um, working class people. There's sort of almost this, it, it almost feels in some ways like the, a sort of conservative nightmare, right? Of working class people sort of living off government benefits and uh, sort of living in squalor. And I've, I found that juxtaposition really just weird and interesting, and I don't entirely know what to make of it. And I read a comment about her that she sort of, she tends to write her characters in general from a very detached viewpoint. And it is it was sort of her personal belief that we live in essentially an amoral universe. Um, and so she, she tends not to write her characters with a very sympathetic eye. And that made me think that what may be going on in a book like this, for instance, is that she is simply writing about terrible people and each category of terrible person she will infuse with whatever vectors um, their circumstances allow to mm-hmm. for them to sort of express the ways in which they're terrible. Um, because all three social classes sort of get that treatment in this novel. Um, but the but the outcome of it is different. And as I say, the the Brexes and Grexes in particular are definitely portrayed as fairly grotesque. Uh, yeah, the the class uh, dynamic is is an interesting one. Uh, something that I I don't you don't really see a lot in in American writing uh, usually, uh, but clearly um, a huge issue in this book. Uh, I didn't find it to be uh, as condemning of a lower class family just because as you were saying every uh, all, all the three major social strata are represented and they all kind of come out looking terrible they all have representations of of uh, the terribleness that, that can come from being in each of these groups so it didn't particularly feel like she was condemning one more than the other it's just that the working class family happens to be the one who creates the killer, but he could have easily been. Oh, certainly. I definitely don't mean. Yeah. I I take Teddy's emergence out of that as itself, not really a condemnation of anything. Yeah. I, I suppose the upper class characters in particular are, are equally detached and sort of emotionless, um, but they have the money to construct a life for themselves that from the outside appears pristine and functional. Right. And when Harriet slips from that is when she, you know, when she doesn't have money to throw around is when she's portrayed as being desperate. And as soon as she has access to the money spigot again, um, she's once again able to reconstruct a facade of normalcy and, and functionality around her life. Yeah. And the only people who are not, detached and in fact are overly mm-hmm. uh attached uh <laughs> are the is is julia who is representative of uh the middle class right well julia and richard are right julia and richard are in some senses you know they, they maintain a ostensibly more functional family life but of course anxieties and neuroses um you know exactly what how one would sort of typically classify the bourgeois or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call them. So, yeah. So everyone gets their, gets their due in this novel, I suppose. Yeah. Should we talk about Francine a little? Yeah. Uh, Who is, I guess, the, the, the hero of the story. (laughs) The only sympathetic character. Yeah. It's, it's really true. Um, We don't, for, for all we, we learn, uh, for all the time that we spend with her, Mm -hmm. we really don't know a lot about her. She's quiet. She reads a lot. She, um, had a terrible experience as a child, uh, you know, basically witnessing the murder of her mother and then uh, is, is living under this increasingly unhinged stepmother, but, but basically never 
reacts in a negative way to Mm -hmm. any of these things. Which, that really rang true to me, I have to say. Oh, really? Yeah. The, The sort of sensation of... In a dysfunctional family environment, uh, that kind of dysfunctional family environment, as opposed to Teddy's, which is like unruly and full of chaos and, and disorder. But this kind of very ordered dysfunctional family being accompanied by the child sort of just withdrawing into herself and was kind of just patiently waiting for life to happen. Mm-hmm. She She's constantly depicted as having this sensation of... Like, okay, I just have to get through this next phase and then I'll get to do whatever. I'll get to get a job or I'll get to go to college or, okay, I'll just get through this gap year and then I'll do the thing and then it'll be fine. That that uh, that felt very well observed to me. And as a result, we don't get as much of her interiority as we do with Teddy. And, and that might be, um, that's sort of unfortunate. I mean, that that might be something of a, of a, um, of a failing, but I think fundamentally, the in the broad strokes, I think Francine's story is very, very believable to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, certainly, uh, that a young woman, uh, you know, young women in in general tend to be sheltered, uh, you know, usually not to the degree in which she is. But I certainly was very convinced by someone like Francine what her experience with her first boyfriend would would be like mm. and and how she is incapable of of really understanding uh that her and and Teddy have a very very unhealthy relationship she she eventually yeah, she's, she's desperate for it to not be that right. she's quietly desperate for yes. it to be functional and enough. and she she eventually can admit to herself that what's going on is not correct but she really doesn't she's too young even then she's almost apologetic about it yes because she's, she's young still, even she's after very very yeah, inexperienced yeah, yeah. and it's and it's interesting because uh when the novel when her story begins you know she's she's a young girl who witnesses her mother being killed in their home and she she finds these letters that she can't read um because one she's too young to be able to read and then when she gets a little bit older the writing is in cursive and she can't read that yet and then eventually she she reaches an age where she can understand the words and she she basically refuses to let herself understand what she's seeing and she gets rid of the letters which when you know we we basically can assume from the beginning from pretty early on that the letters are actually love letters and that probably the man who killed her mother was not some random stranger, but was having some kind of relationship with the mom, which eventually turns out like that, that is what what's Mm -hmm. happening. But early on and makes ends up making the actual crime into something more plausible than random drug dealer comes to your house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, very at the very beginning when, when Francine is kind of skirting around that knowledge and then basically closes the door before she fully is able to admit what's going on uh that she later basic she later does that with teddy right uh where she she comes to the realization that he's a bit voyeuristic is as uh damning as she'll, she'll get with him but she doesn't quite step over the threshold of him uh, you know, being violent. I mean, he tries to rape her, and she basically pushes that away. Uh, she doesn't connect his outbursts and detachment to the fact that her stepmother just happened to be murdered. Uh, around the same time yeah. where he like broke into. You know, she 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 gets to a point and then stops herself, but also. She finally admits that, oh, my mother was having, I'm old enough now to admit that my mom was having an affair and and her ex-lovers who killed her. And then it makes me wonder if, as an older woman, one day she'll reach the conclusion of like, oh, my first boyfriend. Yeah, that's a, that's a distressing thought to imagine her. (laughs) Coming, coming to, to that, that realization. Uh, right? I, I don't want to skip to to the end uh, and and talk about that fully yet, but I, I do want to say that the the Julia part of the ending I found the least believable. Um, so when we when we get to talking about the ending, let's remember, let's put a pin in that <laughs> okay. point. Um, but that's Francine, and then the last 
of the three main characters is Harriet, who definitely uh, we we pay the least amount of attention to, and she's uh, rather quickly m- murdered. Um, the second she s- starts to sleep with uh, the young construction worker right yeah you're just like oh okay okay, yeah Yeah. um and then it does it happens exactly like you're expecting it to um i thought i thought there was a possibility that he would actually that teddy would actually sleep with her no really yeah i in fact i was kind of surprised that he uh became infatuated with francine just because he had displayed absolutely no Mm -hmm. interest and and because we don't know uh, in all the Francine sections, no one describes her as being. No one talks about what what she looks like. So mm-hmm. it, it's not until Teddy yeah. sees her, which I her, think is appropriate, yeah. in given the people she's sure, surrounded sure. with. And, but know. it's not immediately obvious, like oh, they're go- right. they're going to yeah, all of those scenes, and, and we don't even actually experience these scenes. Uh, we just get her describing the fact that he he's draping her. He's he's forcing her to undress yeah. and and like put silks on and and wear beautiful jewelry, uh, unbearable to read. Oh, yeah. e- even like hearing about it after the fact, it was like painful. Very well done, Ruth Rendell, of just making <laughs> your your murderous character like very uh, <sighs> just creepy. And, yeah, yeah. God, this the scene where. They go out to the fancy dinner, and he that was incredible. And he puts on the suit, and yeah. and and she finally is is kind of seeing that this guy is actually maybe violent. Um, where where when he puts on the suit, yeah, he he, he puts on the suit, and and Francine sees him and says, not only does he look very handsome, but also. Uh, the formality of the suit just oh sure uh, highlights yeah. his his coldness and and that's well she and she also stops herself from making a lighthearted joke about right. how the sleeves are too short or right. whatever because she, she knows she's struck by this yeah. yeah she doesn't know why and this is what I mean about her maybe in in a few years finally right. starting right. to understand right. she doesn't know why she stops herself from doing that but she knows enough to not yeah. like gently chide this person and and like seeing her get so close to the truth well the thing the thing i thought you were going to mention which was one of my favorite teddy moments in the book is when they finish their meal at the restaurant and he is so he's he's basically at his most weirdly at his most vulnerable maybe in that scene because he's so incredibly out of his element he does not understand anything about this world even to the extent of how to pay a restaurant bill something he's literally never done in his life and so he's in this intensely emasculated position and is sort of frantically slipping bills under the table because he's so embarrassed that he can't even just put them on the dish right and he has to keep she's like it's not enough and he's still doing it to the that scene was so terrifying Mm -hmm. this this Man who we know is physically powerful mm-hmm. has already uh, killed three people at that point. Oh, really? I think he's no, killed. I don't think he's he's killed Julia at that point. At the very least, a multiple murderer, uh, and and seeing how he's brought so low by this utterly trivial act, mm-hmm. and how much it's just destroying him. I just thought that was a brilliant moment. That was mm-hmm. just a really really smart weird weird scene yeah yeah it was really scary since we actually interrupted ourselves on harriet and got back to julia and Mm -hmm. teddy i do want to say one thing which um, i noticed a couple people on the forums the adult book club forums um mentioned the the uh love letters that that you mentioned that francine throws away a couple people in the forums mentioned that that seemed like a slightly underbaked plot thread and i think i agree with that i think that's given how fully seated and meticulously this book was plotted the throwing away the letters thing did feel a little too much like putting one too many jenga blocks on the top of a thing and a story that was already very taut and Mm -hmm. sort of crystalline in its construction sure but i will counterbalance that with saying how much i loved the note that after she does throw away the letters she comes back to the trash bin later and it's empty mm-hmm. and just that little moment of her probably regretting or potentially regretting 
or what just she did and or then, wanting to check to make sure yeah they they are gone yeah whatever she was going to do whether it was check on them whether it was take them back out whether it was just look she did not can't do that any of that anymore and it's gone forever and i i this object that she had sort of like carefully guarded for years mm-hmm. yeah I'd, I'd love that the the one thing in defense of the letters that i'll say is uh the the plot thread itself does feel like it's something that gets introduced and then at the very end they they reintroduce and yeah it's like okay here's that explanation and it was your your buddy right uh which is also something that feels very clear from the beginning like oh this this guy who they introduce as the father's alibi in the beginning like he's what is his he's gonna have some kind of significance at the end Mm -hmm. and so it's Oh, he turned out to be the the ex lover, the murderer of the um the mother. Anyway, uh, the letters and uh, Francine's fra- father Richard, who who we don't spend a lot of time with, um, all of that stuff. Nor does Francine right? Um, all of of that stuff feel it just reinforces the, a common thread or common theme in the story that no one um, from Teddy to, you know, completely unadjusted Teddy to, I guess, mostly adjusted Francine understands why anyone else is doing what they're doing. Basically, everyone uh, fails at at understanding the motivation of people around them, even people who they care strongly about. Uh, And that's just the letters are just another example of of Francine's father failing to understand what was going on, but also Francine not either not willing to admit or not understanding what was going on. Um, so that would just be... In her case, it was more that she shielded herself from it. Sure. Yeah. Um, that would be my justification for the yeah, letters being... That, that's that's fair enough. That's a good good thematic sort of umbrella yeah. to put everything under. So uh, on that note, let's... Let's actually, for real, move on to Harriet, who it occurred to me I was reading this. Really, there are a lot of parallels between her and um, Francine. They're both women who are first and foremost prized for their beauty and are essentially trapped in, effectively trapped in. Uh, situations that largely rob them of effective, um, you know, agency, agency. and, and, and sure. choices. And the difference being that Harriet seems way more willing to be seen as like, she seems to want to be objectified, which yeah, I'm not saying of- that that then condemns her to anything, but she has more of an awareness of, her beauty. Well, she's an adult for one thing. Well, when she's introduced, she's still yeah. quite young. I mean, she she's taken advantage of for for sure. But it, there there's a contrast there, right? Um, and uh, it's interesting that Harriet is, is her husband is constantly chiding her for looking in mirrors so frequently. Right. Of course, and then the there's the that- well, no, I was going to say, and then there's the mirror that. Teddy oh, sure. makes that mm-hmm. um, he wants Fran- to like trap Francine in, mm-hmm. basically. And he also regards himself in. Oh, he? does he look at himself in it? Yeah, he, probably. He, he, he as I think we're meant to definitely meant to believe that Teddy is in fact legitimately a great judge of beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and he appreciates his own looks and is very frustrated by what he sees is his one major flaw, which is his slightly chocolate finger. Pinky. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, he, he regards himself in the mirror and imagines obviously giving it to a beautiful woman who mm-hmm. will then see herself in it. Yeah. Know, which he tries to do. Um, so Harriet, uh, you know, I mean, I, every time we talk about Harriet, we talk about other characters, but well, I guess it's reflective Har- of her yeah, smaller role I would, in the book, of course. I, I yeah. would even say that Julia is more of a character than Harriet I is... guess that's true. Harriet is more of, of one of the three th- sort of plot threads of the novel, more mm-hmm. than yeah. necessarily as major yeah. a character. We talked enough about Harriet. She gets Fair enough. She gets killed in, in the saddest 
You feel so bad. I mean, I feel oh, bad. I felt f- terrible for her for basically yeah. every character, but especially the older women, um, Ju- Harriet, and then eventually what Julia turns into. It's it's just upsetting what happens to both of them, um, and they both get killed by the same person. All the adults in this story, it's just sad. It's the only one you have hope for is maybe Francine will grow up to n- be not quite. Yeah, Francine will be fine. Ho- hopefully. She's yeah. now had two horribly traumatic things happen sure. to her. But she'll be okay. Um, yeah. So do we want to talk about the ending or are there more sure. characters to? Okay. Uh, the ending of this book is amazing. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I, I, Having now read the ending of this book, um, you know, I, well, like I was saying before, I've only read two Ruth Rendell books, and the first one that I read was fine, nothing super amazing, but also it was not, it was, you know, a good piece of writing. This e- ending is so incredible, it, it it makes me wonder why Ruth Rendell has not uh, caught on more in the U.S., um, uh, have you, are you familiar with the author Tana French? I think I've mm-hmm. mentioned her to you yeah. before. She's an uh, Irish author who writes a lot of detective crime fiction, and she currently uh, seems to have a, a level of popularity in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just like if Tana French can do it, why can't? Why aren't more people talking about a site for sore eyes? Because man, yeah. Um, and she is. She was really successful in the UK too. Yeah. I mean, she seems. It seems like she became a very for, wealthy for good woman. reason because the, no, I know, but I just the mean ending it's... of this book is incredible. Like ah, so many things you like for two thirds of this book, you can see a lot of the stuff that's going to happen. Like you can tell what's going to happen before it does, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because it, like we were saying, it creates this level yeah, this of anxiety, a sense of inevitability, and yeah. dread that permeates yes. it. But then the the like last thirty pages stuff is still. It's not that everything starts happening really really quickly. I I I have the impression that it's still kind of happen. Things are happening at a methodical pace, but it just gets insane. Um, I mean, ba- really, the the uh, where Teddy entombs himself basically. Yeah. I mean, things do really start getting. Things do actually accelerate in the time scale because th- all of the different tracks start to overlay. They get mm-hmm. denser and denser. And by the end of the book, we're almost cutting like minute by minute, it seems, you know, as 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 every all the culminating threads are are becoming intertwined. So at this point, Teddy has, after struggling for I mean, what seems like close to a year, right? With where to hide the body of his uncle Keith. Nine months. Nine months, yeah. That he he suffocated and then hid in the trunk of Keith's beloved Ford Edsel. Um, He finally deposits Keith in the coal cellar of Harriet's house that he um, takes up residence in well he's gonna hide keith in there before he actually takes before he becomes a squatter in this house uh he's gonna just deposit him in there i believe yeah when he thinks harriet's on vacation kills harriet as well when it turns out she's not on vacation Mm -hmm. buries her in there as well and then ultimately eventually accidentally entombs himself right in this triple grave so there are like two edgar Allan poe references (laughs) in this the the I forgot. I didn't think about the first one, which is uh, when he kills his uncle, who is his first murder victim. victim uh, he he keeps the uncle's body in the trunk of uh, the the Etzel for almost a year, right? And and the I I'm not super familiar with with this this kind of um, London house, but I, from my understanding, the the where the car was parked, he Freddie could see. It from Teddy? sorry, I keep I keep wanting to say Freddy instead of Teddy. <laughs> Teddy is a terrible name for a psychopathic. Oh, I love it. I think it's great. Uh, anyway, I assume. Do we ever know if it's actually Theodore or is he always I Teddy? I, I I don't remember. Okay. Anyway, uh, he can see the car from where he's sleeping in the house. Is that correct? I, I believe so. I mean, okay. you can see it from inside, certainly. Yeah. yeah. 
So he, there's so many like references to him being, uh, like imagining what's in the trunk and and mm-hmm. and like feeling the mm-hmm. presence of the body from the trunk, which is. And being terrified of the potential smell that will erupt right. when he eventually opens it. Right. Uh, or, or just get freaking out when anyone even like, touches the... Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, thinking back on it now, that's like uh, the Edgar Allan Poe, um, what is it, the Telltale Heart? Mm-hmm. That, that's yeah. the one where he buries the guy under the floorboards yeah. and he can hear... Yeah, here's the heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, the, the reason why I bring this up is because when I when I was reading the book, uh, you know, Teddy, um, he, he buries his, his uncle and Harriet in the coal cellar and he takes the door off the frame uh and and bricks it up so mm-hmm. that it it's it's they are literally entombed he bricks in the the door so w- where once there was a door yeah. leading to the cellar there's now no way to to get to it uh which is also an Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> story i was telling you about the the cast of the um, um Amontillado where uh one man seeking revenge buries uh, an acquaintance alive with he bricks him into mm-hmm. uh, the catacombs and and when in the scene where um, Teddy is entombing these dead bodies, I was thinking about that, but I never would have guessed yeah. that the eventual <laughs> result was going to be he yeah. him himself being mm-hmm. trapped there i thought with franklin casually replacing the manhole cover god that was incredible that that in particular so franklin is harriet's husband husband uh that moment in particular was really great because i thought you know uh so teddy ha- is squatting in this house he has the two dead bodies in the basement and he is is uh hiding them there and meanwhile, occasionally we, we we catch up with Franklin, who is Harriet's much older husband, who in his, the few scenes that he's in, we learn that he's decided to get back with uh, the woman who he was married to before marrying Harriet. And, mm-hmm. and, and those scenes are just like, oh, this is nice. We're reuniting, right? They're very disconnected from yeah. everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kept thinking like, oh, my God. This man, he's going to come home and the police are going to discover these two bodies. Right. Uh, the wife has an established, uh, mo- or not motive, but established pattern of calling up right. workers. The uncle Keith is a plumber. They're going right. to think that he was a, yeah, yeah, a lover yeah, yeah, yeah. and that Franklin killed both I of see. them. I yeah. was like, this is definitely where it's going to go. This right. is so <laughs> fucked up. Like, I can't believe it. Nope. Yeah. yeah totally I guess Franklin just yeah. gets a happy ending. Yeah. He's just. He's fine. He's like, yeah. my wife left. Yeah. Awesome. I'll I, take this mirror. Yeah. Oh, um, somebody moved this uh, Alphaton. moved my Simon Alphaton That painting. was stupid. Anyway, was, I'm going to sell this house to some Americans. They don't need to survey it. It'll yeah. stand for decades. Yeah. Well, and, and, um. I will just share the premise of the sequel to this novel, The Vault, which is that this, you know, years later, this tomb is found. And it's it's actually a really great premise for its own crime novel, because if you can imagine mm-hmm. a, the police encountering this weird crypt, basically, right. just in someone's house what what on earth it is just so it's a really it's actually a really good setup Mm -hmm. for a novel and it's it's kind of clever the way what rendell did is sort of clever which is to tie it into her long-running inspector wexler series and so from that character's standpoint this is just a brand new case the way it could have been in any theoretical new inspector wexler novel um but it's sort of piggybacking on this whole weird social novel It's, uh, it's sort of a funny thing Anyway, I agree. Great ending. Really captivating. And I actually forgot details of it from when I read the book initially. So I still, Mm -hmm. by the time I got to the end, there were various things that I was still, I was just like on the edge of my seat. Mm -hmm. And I I just blazed through the end of the novel for that reason. Uh, So the, the, remember the pin that I mentioned before? Mm -hmm. Can we talk about Julia's death? Oh, sure. So... Uh, Julia traps Francine 
Freddy. Yeah, Ju- Julia God, I keep saying Freddy. Teddy. Yeah. Teddy. It's because well, it's so terrible if his name were Freddy. Because of Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Why would that wouldn't that wouldn't be good? That'd be bad. They, they don't know who Freddy. <laughs> Ruth Rendell didn't know who. Yeah, probably not. So yeah, so Fred, so Julia is the second wife of Richard Francine's father, and she is a uh, former child psychotherapist. A bad one. Yeah, as we learn, one who who is sort of a disgraced mm-hmm. child psychotherapist, but that is not how she presents herself mm-hmm. to to Richard and Francine and her weird ideas about how to help children deal with trauma only seem to serve to reinforce the trauma and to feed her own paranoid delusions about the recur the eventually inevitable recurrence of this trauma uh, which she weirdly ends up being a participant in mm-hmm. i suppose um but yeah her her strange beliefs about child psychology lead her to become almost a sort of fairy tale evil stepmother to uh mm-hmm. to the point where she literally in. locks yeah. her stepdaughter away right to be rescued by her by her, her murderous boyfriend yeah. <laughs> so teddy uh, unsurprisingly kills julia in in the least surprising twists yeah that happens the the thing that i wanted to talk about so the end of the novel francine uh leaves or the Orcadia house mm-hmm. after Freddie has attempted to rape her, right? Um, yeah. and, it, and it immediately is starting to make excuses for that, right? But it, even even as she's excusing it, she's coming to the realization that this she needs to end this relationship. Yeah, she f- discovers that Julia is dead. Doesn't make any connection to Teddy whatsoever. Yeah. That, w- w- of all the, the tidiness of the ending of this book, which I think Rendell did a really, really good job of, of wrapping mm-hmm. everything up in, in a very satisfying way, that was the one bit that I kind of didn't... Oh, I disagree. I actually found fault in a different aspect of it. Uh-huh. That I did not. Because, when, because she leaves the house with Teddy, mm-hmm. goes past Julia... Mm-hmm. Even though she technically would have no way to know whether Julia is alive or dead, she would have no reason to believe that she's dead. So in her mind, she's like, oh, we left and Julia was just there asleep on the couch. Mm-hmm. The, so it, it, humans have this tendency to like whatever your first assumption is, you're going to stick to that a lot longer than you would if you were coming. Like then if she had just not ever been in contact with Julia that day and then, you know, who knows? Um, that I, I totally bought what was a little bit weirder, not weirder, but what I thought stretched credulity a little bit more was during the police investigation of Julia's murder. It was just very convenient that she never made any reference to the existence of Teddy whatsoever. Just like, Oh, didn't want to get him involved. That to me felt yeah. that part was a little harder to swallow, Yeah, but her not connecting Teddy to Julia's death, at least early on was not sure for me to swallow but yes the fact that she doesn't mention him at all uh is is very even seemingly much later in time Mm -hmm. once she gets her voice back and everything else yeah yeah Yeah. uh but it does it does make sense that she based on the the way that their last interaction went that she would never want to try and actually see him although she she kind of did she went to his house to give back sure. his, was it his ring? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. She drops it off in an envelope and she sort of, right. she is sort of glad that he wasn't there. Yeah. But she still put herself in a position where he made Sure, but she doesn't him. care enough to then be like, Keep well, following right, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah, see yeah. him one last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that that whole aspect, which maybe what you're supposed to, to think is, oh, she went through something similar when her mother was murdered uh, decades earlier where she couldn't admit to herself what was going on and, and, and that maybe then you know when she's a little bit older she'll finally realize that oh this man was the one which is terrible to think about basically everyone at the end of this book is ruined except for <laughs> Franklin yeah. um, and Agnes who gets the ring Agnes is Teddy's grandmother right yeah yeah. Uh, who, yeah, who she's keep, the same as she ever was, I yeah, suppose. She keeps the ring for a little bit. And loses it almost immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Which is that, that, the yeah, the, the way that 
thousands of, of tiny decisions will then create some event f- for a person where that individual person is never going to understand any of the significance of what has led up to that moment. Like Agnes gets a ring and she leaves it in a bathroom for another person to discover, which is basic, which is how the, the book itself opens. Right. Um, only now we've just spent, how, how does the book open? It, uh, it doesn't actually open with, it opens with Harriet, but something that happens very early on in the book is, uh, Eileen, Freddie, Teddy's wow. mom finding the ring in mm-hmm. a bathroom. Okay. And then the, the, this is how the, the book ends. Right. And it's like, uh, these two events, which to the women who are both finding and, and losing, it's this one moment in time that has this very fixed significance. I found something, I lost something. And then we spend an entire book seeing all these crazy twists and turns that then explode out into, uh, have all, all kinds of consequences that uh, people who are experiencing those consequences just can't even begin to fathom mm-hmm, all yeah. the little decisions that are leading up to those moments. Mm-hmm. And and so it, the book opens with that and it, and it closes in that way. We individually just do not understand things that are happening. We neither understand people uh, beyond, outside of ourselves uh, because you can never truly know a person as well as you can know your, your own self, right? And we also don't understand the way that everything is incredibly connected the universe is sort of i think simultaneously utterly chaotic right and random and meaningless and also an infinitely intricate series of right. cause cause and effect but when you read and a trying book to understand any of those things yeah. it's very difficult yes in, in our own lives but through fiction through books like this you you can kind yeah, of can start see, to we, see yeah we well especially when we see a sort of constructed um sure. sort of gl- a snow globe yeah the ending of the book is great um, the beginning of this book is great. I I hope more, way more people uh, start reading A Cipher Sore Eyes because it is definitely one of the better uh, mystery not not mystery crime crime novels, crime novels but also just novel yeah, novel. It's very good. So yeah. that was A Cipher Sore Eyes by Ruth Rendell. Next month we are reading Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson. Uh, a book you recently read. No. I oh, you didn't? No. Oh, never mind. I started to read it. Okay. Well, Dennis Johnson passed away, I believe, just a couple months ago, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's been in the air, yeah. I suppose. And this is one of his classic works. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very short. Is there anything you wanted to say about it? Uh, I don't know a lot about it, honestly, except that it's... I th- think it's just short stories. I All I know is that it is widely considered to be his best piece of writing well there you go so so it's jesus's son by dennis johnson we'll be reading that uh for july you can send us email at books at idlethumbs.net our website is idlebookclub.com and that has links to the places you can find us online if you like the show please consider telling a friend and um if you like the show also consider rating us and reviewing us on itunes it means a lot and it is really the only way we have to uh find new folks to listen to this. There's also a lot of really great discussion that happens every month on the Idle Book Club forums, which you can find if you go to idlebookclub.com and then follow the link there for the forums. We put up a post every month for the book we're discussing, and there's always a pre-discussion thread for next month's book. So if you finish it early, you can share your thoughts along with other uh, podcast listeners and readers. And on that uh, we will be back next month with Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson. For the Idle Book Club, I'm Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Arkadale. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.